0: You are now tuned into the Hip Hop Learners Podcast, a place for conversations on hip hop literature, both scholarly as well as academic. Today's guest is Danielle Garcia, a recent graduate from the City University of New York. For a master's dissertation, Danielle wrote a piece entitled The Politics of Hip Hop A Political Analysis of Hip Hop's History and Its Complicated Relationship with Capitalism. The dissertation, published in the School of Political Science, speaks on the early South Bronx history and how the politics of the borough shaped hip hop culture. I found the text quite enjoyable, and there was lots of little kind of learning experiences throughout that I thought were worthy of discussion. Furthermore, we haven't really had the opportunity to speak on the history of the South Bronx for the podcast, and I think this is a good place to start. There is a moment in the discussion where I reference the work of Houston A. Baker and I'd just like to add a couple end notes to my comments here. The first thing is that I named the book incorrectly. The actual title of Houston's book is Black Studies Rap in the Academy and it was published by the University of Chicago Press in 1993. The second point is in our conversation I speak on Houston's comments regarding the boombox portable cassette player and in my conversation I use the term ghetto blaster. I understand the term's racial implications and I would normally use that term to describe a boombox however it was mid-conversation and part of dr baker's arguments was the use of the term and the racial implications of it because of this that is kind of what was in my head at the time and that's what i ended up using that said i apologize the conversation is still a great one and i learned a lot from reading garcia's piece and i hope you find the dialogue thought-provoking and engaging as well that said here's episode 8 with danielle garcia I guess starting the, the actual podcast, and I know I said this at the beginning of the call here, but I can't thank you enough, Danielle, for taking the time up to speak to me here today. I appreciate it, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation.
1: Same, me too. I'm really excited.
0: Yeah. Um, So, so far on the podcast, we've, uh, I guess we've handled a a few varying different perspectives. We're only a few episodes in, but one of the things that we really haven't discussed is kind of the history of the South Bronx and the politics of the borough that facilitated the creation of hip hop and hip hop culture in the, in the 1970s. Um, And I feel like this dissertation does a really good job at kind of showing how these two ideas, that being the, the South Bronx history and politics and hip hop politics are connected. So I'd like to start with some of the history of the South Bronx, and I think it's a good kind of place to start, would be with the South Bronx itself. You point out something that I, I don't think I've ever heard before, um, but I found fascinating, and that's that the South Bronx is treated almost metaphorically, and when people refer to the South Bronx, they really speak on a much kind of larger area than any map will end up pointing out. Um, so I guess to, to start things off, can you just detail exactly what you mean when you when you say the South Bronx?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a bit confusing, really, to say what is the South Bronx, because it kind of is a lot of different things, and it's not just one geographic location. Sure. I think what was just really interesting to me is that when I was doing this and kind of trying to pinpoint where the South Bronx was, um, the birthplace of hip-hop, which is 1520 Cedric Avenue in the Bronx, It was nowhere near where the South Bronx was actually located. And I was a little bit confused at that. And I'm like, well, why is it that we're always associating the South Bronx with graffiti culture and hip-hop culture and breakdancing? If you look up the South Bronx, hip-hop references will come up, no matter like all over the Internet. So looking deeper into this, I kind of saw that the South Bronx is more of just like a term to describe the communities there. Um, and it's not really a geographic place, but like you said, it's, it's really a metaphor and the boundaries are constantly shifting. And it's very elusive. And what makes the South Bronx the South Bronx is really um, the urban decay. That is like a characteristic of what makes the South Bronx the South Bronx. And it's really a creation of uh, you know, New York's modernization as well as the dest- destruction that was happening during that modernization. So it's just kind of an interesting place, and it's more really like cultural and ideological, and ideol <laughs> ideological ideological, yeah. um, than physical. So, yeah, it's fascinating. You,
0: uh, you, you mentioned the 1520 Sedgwick Avenue. Um, and for those listening at home, that's an apartment complex that I guess I think it was Cindy, um, um, Cool Herc's sister that originally ended up—I uh, know she drew up the flyer—and you can tell that original kind of hip hop flyer um, has her stamp on it at the very least. Um, but yep. between uh, between Cindy and and Cool Herc, it was really the the first kind of hip hop block party um, that was that was held, and um, really, I guess in the hip hop history kind of ethos, um, considered a landmark event. I think it was August 13th in 1974, I think. Um, but it's like, it's a really kind of pivotal moment. And to, to realize that that's not actually really located in the South Bronx is, is absolutely fascinating. Um, just, I excuse my ignorance, but, and I'm not from New York. I'm, I'm, well, I'm Nova Scotia now, but I'm from Southern Ontario. Um, but either way, not from New York. Um, if you look on a map, where is 1520 Central Avenue? What what area would that be considered?
1: Yeah, it's actually in an area called Morris Heights. Um, I'm not too familiar with the area myself, Sure. Um, but Morris Heights is not considered to be a part of the South Bronx if you look up a list of neighborhoods of the South Bronx. Um, it's actually on the other side. So, yeah, but it's, it's it's named Hip Hop Boulevard. Uh, so it's interesting.
0: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Um, it's just one of those little kind of tidbits of information that are thrown within the dissertation that, um, at least I walked away from completely kind of shifting my view on, on something that I that I thought I knew very, very well. Um, if you asked me before I read this piece, I would 100% say not only 1520 subject Avenue is, is located within the Bronx, but the Bronx, uh, the, the South Bronx is the South Bronx. It's what you would end up seeing on a map. Um, to see that that's not the case was, was nevertheless interesting. Um Kind of the narrative of the paper um, really starts at the creation of the Bronx Expressway. And I think it's kind of a really important landmark to discuss. And for those listening at home, can you detail what exactly the the Expressway was and I guess why it was created, as well as where and and when it was was situated?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, the Cross Bronx Expressway was really this master plan to make New York City more connected. Um, they had already kind of started putting resources into creating a more modernized New York City, a more connected New York City. Um, You know, there was a lot of skyscrapers going up during this time. Um, Early plans actually started in the 1930s to create the Cross Bronx Expressway. Um, And by 1945, there was already a system of open highways being proposed. And this tore right through the Bronx. Um, It cut through the neighborhoods of the Bronx, and in its completion, it actually connected different parts of New Jersey, Manhattan, Bronx, Long Island, um, but it also displaced about 30,000 Bronx residents. Um, so while it was being created, neighborhoods were quite literally being destroyed by the construction. There was kind of a complete disregard for the neighborhoods that were there, a kind of complete disregard for the destruction that this would cause, that any kind of um, building would cause. Um, so while this project really did kind of achieve a more connected New York, it also forced other groups into isolation, into areas of destruction. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: One of the things that you note is, I guess the demographics of the area at that period of time before the expressway ended up being enacted. Um, and you note that there, it was a much different, I guess, demographics than what we'd be used to today in terms of the, the South Bronx. And furthermore, I guess more importantly, what, you would see the South Bronx to be in, in the mid-1970s. Um, you note that there was uh, large amounts of Jewish populations um, that were, I guess, uh, forced out of the area due to the expressway. Um and that ended up kind of um shifting to to largely black and hispanic uh, and Latinx communities that ended up kind of coming into the expri- or into the South Bronx almost as a replacement um during that period of of kind of white fleet as you as you mentioned in the the article um one of the things that i i kind of found interesting is. The, the damage done to that original community by the expressway now you note there that it was 30,000 people that ended up being forced kind of out of the out of the area um, why do you think it was so I guess damaging to that original community um, the the actual expressway itself because it feels like it was more it, it was damaging beyond just the 30,000 people that left it like the people that remained it was also damaging I guess that's kind of where I'm getting at
1: yeah I mean I think that's a great question because um, if you ask when you ask me that question, I would say that it's really um, it's strategy. Um, the implications of the Cross Bronx Expressway weren't just an accident or you know a coincidence. These were strategic implications. Um, this was a an active attempt to racialize American society. There were so many things going on in the background during this time that were also supporting this notion of a more racialized. Um, divide, divided American society. Um, you know, I, I, really didn't even get into all of it. There was a lot of things I didn't even mention, you know, the civil rights movement and other political events that were going on. Um, but I did mention, uh, you know, World War II and the implications of the GI Bill that were really centered around helping white veterans and, um, strategically and very evidently excluded Black veterans. So there was a lot of different things going on in the United States history um, that was creating kind of this racialized society. And the Cross Bronx Expressway was an element of that racialization. Um, this was, you know, in my view, a strategic attempt to change the neighborhoods um, and shift the racial elements of the neighborhoods. Um, yeah, and a, a lot of scholars, I actually don't think would view what happened in the south bronx as white flight um a lot of times we don't really um talk about uh jewish people in terms of white flight um but i just thought that this was so interesting that the neighborhood just changed so drastically so quickly um as a result of really like this one project
0: yeah, the I guess the the neglect that you end up speaking on um, kind of works towards that. I think the GI Bill, uh, the money that's that's poured into areas like Manhattan rather than the South Bronx in the years following. Um, I think that's that's all kind of there at the very least. Um, one of the the interesting kind of aspects of the article that touches on this is. You mentioned that there was a sense of hope that the community had pre-1970, um, and how that hope was ultimately, I guess, dismantled as the, as the years ended up going on, leaving much of the Bronx to literally be on fire, um, I, I recently picked up a copy of the Bronx is burning by, by Jonathan Mahler. And it's such an interesting history here, the burning and the neglect. And they, I guess those aspects often end up getting mentioned in hip hop histories, but what we don't end up usually hearing is the, is the sense of hope that the community had um, prior to, to these developments. Do you think that this hope was, was ultimately justified at this time? Like, do you think that there was something that was getting better, um, yeah, do you think that the hope was, was justified?
1: You know, it's such a hard question because I have so much knowledge on what happened that looking back, I, I would say no, maybe it wasn't justified, but I think in that time when, you know, you're in a community that's really thriving, um, you know, people were taking care of each other before this in the South Bronx. Um, you know, communities were close-knit, um, Children were taken care of by neighbors and community. So I think at that time, yeah, the hope was was justified. I I don't think that they could have predicted um, something like this to really happen. Gotcha. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, so hip hop is kind of used here as a resistance force against a lot of these ideas and a lot of the oppression that, that takes place. Um, and one of the ways that you kind of describe the resistance is through ideas like a common language and this hidden transcripts. Um, these are kind of thought provoking ideas arguing that participants in hip hop culture were kind of speaking in a, a sort of coded tongue that was indecipherable to the oppressors. Um, and they allowed the community to kind of unite to to fight these institutional problems. Do you think that these methods were effective um, in kind of providing a resistance force? Um, Do you see that that was, um, of course, maybe a strategic tool, maybe not intentionally a strategic tool, um, but do you think that it was one that ultimately kind of worked to, to give hip hop the kind of political presence that it has?
1: Yeah, I definitely think that it worked. I think it still works today too. I mean, like hip hop has so many hidden transcripts. I think it's really incredible. Um, but yeah, there's just so many ideas. I mean, even now, and you know, this is something that I study, I can listen to a hip hop song the first time I'll get something from it. And then by the fifth time that I'm listening to it, I have a completely different message than the first time I listened to it. Um, whether it's kind of like metaphors that are being used or different types of like styles and rapping or singing, you know, um, something today that people like hate on is mumble rap. And, like, that itself is a hidden transcript. Like, if you can't understand that, if you can't understand the meaning behind it, it's probably not meant for you. That's a hidden transcript. You know, that's a form of communication. So I think when you know that I think that's also why it was so interesting to me is because this is so relevant today, you know, like with mumble rap and new styles of rap that we're seeing that are kind of unconventional, they kind of, you know, sometimes mainstream society doesn't really get it. But that's the whole point, you know, if you're not getting it, you know, maybe you're not meant to get it. So I think it's really interesting. I definitely think that it's uh, successful.
0: Yeah, the mumble wrap thing is interesting because it's not just, it's not just that it's indecipherable. It's that it is decipherable to a specific group of kids, right? To a, to a youth community that really embraces it. They understand what this means. They understand the meaning behind it. Um, and furthermore, they, it means something to, to their, uh, to themselves and to their lives. Um, it's a, it's a way that they, um, kind of empower themselves in in many ways right the music that they listen to is empowering to a to a group of youth um so it's it's hidden in a way that it's indecipherable to i guess the outsider audience um but internally within that community it's something that is is very well kind of understood at the very least um, I think that that's I, I think the mumble rap thing is is a is a great example. Um, it's something that I guess I didn't really think about when I think of mumble rap, um, but it does definitely share a lot of those um, kind of trademarks of what you would say is like of early hip hop and, and politicized hip hop and conscious hip hop, if you want to put that label on it.
1: Yeah, and just you know another thing about mumble rap because I think it's so interesting is that it's actually a, also a process too in hip hop. A lot of hip hop artists um, will start mumbling to kind of get their melody going to get their flow going it will start out as a mumble and it will turn into flows you know it will turn into bars when you work on it um like i've seen people work like that in the studio um my partner is actually a music artist too so it's a process as well so it's actually an art form too so i think mumble rapping is a really interesting um Point and, like, with the hidden transcripts, that's kind of what made me so interested in, in these hidden transcripts was just kind of understanding Mumble rap too. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's very, very complex.
0: Um, one of the key elements in your thesis is, is that of capitalism and the, the commodification of hip hop culture. Um, you point out, and I think rightfully so, that, that hip hop is kind of at odds with these ideas, and there's this contradictory kind of notion at play here. Um, to be authentically hip hop, you have to be resistant to the hegemony, but in order to succeed, you kind of have to belong to that same hegemony. Um, furthermore, as you kind of point out, hip hop was created within that paradigm and maybe could not really exist without its kind of maybe capitalistic element at play. Um, this seems to be one of the main kind of centralizing points of, of your thesis. Um, I'm just kind of curious from, I guess, a methods perspective, when you started working on this, did was that the direction that you knew the paper was going to go in? How did you kind of come up with this idea?
1: Yeah, I love that question because I started somewhere completely different. Um, I actually started out wanting to uncover the revolutionary aspects of hip-hop. I was way more optimistic about its revolutionary potential. Um, I was actually really interested in, in trap music and, you know, kind of seeing if, like, the trap house was a channel for political activism. I was just seeing so much resistance coming out of, like, the subgenre, and it kind of started from there. Um, it turned into, um, you know, hip-hop's revolutionary potential to hip-hop's revolutionary limits. Um, Once I got more into it, because I kind of started to realize, like, there is so much politics and there's so much resistance. But, you know, in the end, it's stifened by uh, capitalism and just the market that we live in and its commodification. So, yeah, it started out on the other spectrum. I was super optimistic and my kind of my research just kind of led me here. And I just kind of started understanding more about, you know, its actuality and its actual existence and its actual limitations.
0: Um, considering that the uh, the idea I guess originally started elsewhere, and specifically in this idea of kind of trap music, um, did you feel that once you kind of settled on this idea that it was maybe an, an overcrowded space, at least scholarly and academically? Um, I feel like I don't know. I do a lot of reading on hip hop studies and. It seems like there's there's a, a huge amount of attention dedicated towards not only New York hip hop but this era specifically. And I I applaud you for for writing this. I think you ended up kind of offering a unique voice to to this issue. Um, but then nevertheless, I, I myself study Canadian hip hop and I'm, I'm working on kind of documenting it. And I, I think I was gravitated towards my own uh, kind of subject um, because of the the lack of attention that it was previously kind of garnered. Um, in, in this case I would almost be put off covering the Bronx um, and specifically the Bronx in the 70s um, as a kind of an idea within hip-hop studies just because I feel like it's it's really kind of overcrowded and oversaturated with different ideas um, it's it's great when a new idea kind of comes forward and gets illustrated um, but at the same time from kind of just a researcher perspective I I would find something like this fairly daunting did you did you have that sense of um i guess worry when you when you finally kind of settled on this idea
1: i guess i didn't really have that worry because i kind of had like some preconceived ideas of what i wanted to go in with um sure. i and because I am just really involved in hip-hop and I love hip-hop, I had these ideas that I wanted to explore. I was reading the literature, too, and I couldn't really find the answers to the questions that I was asking. Um, so even though there was a lot of literature on it and kind of on, Bronx, you know, the Bronx history, there was kind of a disconnect. You know, nobody was really talking about, well, why is, you know, why do we call it the South Bronx? But hip-hop was, you know, quote-unquote birthed on the other side of the Bronx. I didn't really find anyone, like, asking those questions and kind of, you know, trying to understand, well, what does hip-hop mean for us today? Like, what are the implications of it for us today? And how can we really, like, move forward with it? Um, So, yes and no. I think there was some times where I was intimidated, but also I found that a lot of the work wasn't answering the questions that I was searching to answer. And like you said, it wasn't as fully, like, immersed in the culture. So, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah,
0: there is. I guess an additional theme of the, of the paper, um, is there's plenty of discussion of, of space, um, in the thesis. So you, you point out a, a great line of dialogue from, and I, um, I may be pronouncing his name incorrectly here but Lipsitz um I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly um uh, but he addresses kind of the fact that race in America is is largely segregated in terms of space um so you have school districts segregated by race um housing segregated by race I don't think it's mentioned but gerrymandering as well um drawing kind of political lines again segregated by race um so race and space kind of go hand in hand where do you see this idea of space kind of fitting into the concept of of hip-hop and politics because i think that's kind of a major theme of of this paper
1: yeah and space was such i mean it still is such a huge part of hip-hop but i mean even more so back then i think space is such an important part and it's so complicated and complex especially when you kind of um like combine it with race and just like space being racialized and then race being spatialized and it gets really confusing but Um, I think specifically like public space and the use of public space was really, really important in hip hop. Um, Something that I mentioned in my paper was um, the use of electricity from the streetlights to power the turntables. Um, You know, this this was space that was being destroyed. It was being turned into ashes, really. Um, But people there were utilizing whatever they had, whatever space they had to create community, to create culture, to create art. Um, so space was being used to, you know, try and push these communities out to kind of silence these communities. And then it was also kind of being reclaimed by those groups to assert their community, assert their culture and, you know, assert themselves. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting kind of relationship there between race and space.
0: Yeah, the, uh, I guess the, the conversation around public spaces and how hip hop has utilized public spaces in the past and how, hip-hop has been kind of politicized within public spaces, I think it's a a conversation that other academics have had, and I always find it a really fascinating kind of subject to dive into. Um, I think one of the first arguments that I kind of heard that articulated this was um, in a book by Houston A. Baker. Um, I want to say the book is called... um, rap black studies in the academy um, but it came out in the kind of early 90s and he has a chapter in there where he, uh, where he talks about the, the ghetto blaster um, and how in kind of the, the um, kind of late 80s I guess mid to late 80s early 90s um, you had this kind of public outcry over the ghetto blaster kind of promoting or playing hip hop music loudly in public spaces in New York City um, and I found that argument fascinating because he points out um, I Ideas like, well, you consider uh, you don't consider something like a billboard to be pollutants in your public space, but you consider hip hop music to be noise pollutants within your public space. And how do we um, how do we account for public space and what do we do with public space and what's permissible to be allowed within this area? Um, and hip hop almost seems to always get this kind of the short end of the stick and is controversial when allowed in these public mediums. I think um graffiti aspect is is something that obviously comes up in the territorial nature of of hip hop in its early years. Um but I I don't really necessarily have a question here, but I just find that this is a, a fascinating kind of area of of inquiry. Um and whenever it gets covered in, in academic articles, it's something that I always gravitate towards. Um, but there's there's just so much to explore within this area.
1: Yeah. And going back to Lipsitz, too, is like he talks about that, you know, a white spatial imaginary and the white spatial imaginary is an imaginary that views space as really, you know, the locus for, you know, value Um, and anything that kind of falls without, you know, outside of that is wrong or bad and you know hip-hop falls outside of that hip-hop is not part of the white spatial imaginary you know it it falls outside of that and so automatically now it's negative rather than being something that you know is beautiful or artistic um so it's interesting that you know if something doesn't fit within that white spatial imaginary it's kind of you know not it's not good in our society um so and that white spatial imaginary is what you know, I believe kind of fuels a project like the Cross Bronx Expressway, you know, envisions of this space that's great for white people. Um, that's perfect for them. But yeah, add in some loud hip hop music and now it no longer fits that white spatial imaginary and now it's wrong. Um, so yeah, it's really interesting because, um, you know, graffiti is art, but, You might ask someone and they might think that, you know, it's damaging to their neighborhood or, you know, something like that. So it's interesting that that take.
0: Yeah, even like a scholar, a notable scholar, Trisha Rose, um, she's covered this idea a fair amount as well. Um, I I remember reading a piece from her where she was arguing that the... um, that specific venues in the early '90s became kind of blocked off to to hip hop, and people didn't want to end up promoting hip hop or allowing hip hop to access these venues um, because of um, perceived violence at these shows. And she notes that it kind of stemmed from one incident. I think it was a stabbing at a hip hop festival with like Big Daddy Kane, Bismarck Key, and a bunch of kind of hip hop legends in the the late '80s. And there was the stabbing that took place at this festival. Um, and immediately after, hip hop became kind of associated with this violence and Stop being allowed into these public avenues. But what she was doing is she was just looking, looking at the facts and being like, okay, well, a week prior to that there was a stabbing also at a punk show, and um, there was there's all these other things that are happening. But hip hop is is singled out as this kind of violent nature um, when just statistically looking at it, it wasn't necessarily the case. Um, yeah, like I said, it's a it's a fascinating area of inquiry um, and something that I always kind of gravitate towards. And notable scholars have covered it in the past. But it's always something that I um, that I enjoy reading.
1: Yeah, same.
0: Um, lastly, you kind of you close out the piece with um, one of the again just most kind of interesting discoveries that I th- that I think you really made here and that's that hip-hop is often kind of spoken of as this black culture and black art form, yet when you read into texts discussing hip-hop roots and histories, they are almost always cognitive of the kind of Hispanic and Latinx communities as well. And these communities, together with the African-American communities, notably in the South Bronx, are clearly working together to create this hip-hop culture, yet only one racial group seems to get the credit, it seems. Um... I, I know you mentioned the kind of in the scope of the paper you were limited to to addressing this in more depth, but but why do you think that this is, and and do you think that this kind of warrants maybe a, a rewrite of our coverage of hip hop?
1: It's really complicated. Um, there's definitely something going on um, that's deeper that I would like to uncover, um, but it's hard to say because. You know, hip hop is multiracial. A lot of a lot of scholars will agree that it's multiracial, um, like multi-ethnic, but it also yeah. does speak to a black experience um, in America. And there's something unique about that. And there is also something that bridges together these communities, uh, you know, Latinx communities and black communities. You know black and brown communities whether they're from Africa or Jamaica or the Caribbean there's something that bridges these communities together and what I think it is is class I think that class is um like a major element of hip-hop and really any resistance movement that kind of brings you know people together the common thread here was that um these groups of people were lower income and they were kind of forced into these conditions because they didn't have a choice Um, So the common thread is, is, is their class. And um, I just think that, you know, sometimes when we focus too much on race and we don't address that class is also, um, you know, such a major issue, it kind of creates even more division. Um, So I think it's just really worth worth mentioning that, like, you know, yes, uh, hip hop is definitely a black art, but there's also other actors. And we kind of, I think should work more on work towards figuring out, while those other actors are included? What is the common thread that brings us all together? And how can we really come together as a collective unit, as a multiracial uh, collective action? You know, how can we create this multiracial collective action to kind of stop this commodification, stop this, you know, let oppressive, uh, the oppressive elements of late capitalism. So that's kind of where I'm going with that. I kind of want to just understand what makes us the same, rather than what makes us different in this situation.
0: Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree. I I also I I understand that that hip hop is um, most certainly expressed in in the majority of cases, especially during its earlier years, as as kind of, um, I guess, an African-American expression um, and an expression of their kind of lived reality. Um, if you look at a lot of hip-hop artists that would have came out in the, the late 80s, early 90s, you have this very pro, uh, pro-African um, kind of element to to hip-hop, let it be the Digable Planets or uh, Poor Righteous Teachers or what have you, there's Public Enemy, there's this conversation that's being had that's very exclusive to the Black experience but at the same time, um, as you say, there's there's other characters at play here, and when you look at especially other elements, so looking at like the b-boy culture, DJ culture, and whatnot, um, especially during these early kind of infancy years of the culture, you see you see a mixed background, you, you see a, a kind of a, a mixed melting pot of ideas and ethnicities that are contributing to, to these ideas, to these techniques, um into advancing the culture overall. Um, at some point, I think it gets turned into kind of a black expression. Obviously, that was always there to some degree. Um, these people were still pr- predominantly um, participating in the culture and, and making the culture something for them. Um, but I think it gets turned into something that's more ex- exclusively black as time goes on.
1: I would agree, especially with this globalization um, and just kind of like expanding across the world. I think it's definitely turned into something that's like distinctly black. And there's kind of this like globalization now that's happening of like black culture. Um, and I think that happens a lot through hip-hop, too. Um, you know, hip-hop kind of is being adopted, like, all over the world. And that's, that's another thing that's really interested, uh, interesting to me, is to kind of understand how hip-hop manifests around the world and how race plays into that, um, you know, because obviously our racial dynamics in the United States are extremely complex, and, and they're a lot different than that in other countries because we're such a diverse country and so to see hip-hop kind of being um, co-opted by other countries and seeing how it manifests there and kind of what the racial aspect of hip-hop will mean in other countries that's something that's really interesting to me too that I'd like to work further on.
0: 100%. Speaking of that, I wanted to ask what is I guess next for you. Um you just ended up doing your master's thesis and by the way, congratulations. I should have said that right from the very beginning, but congratulations on the <laughs> masters. Um but uh what uh yeah, what's what's next? Do you have any ideas for a PhD if that's something you're you're envisioning or wanting? Um what what do you plan on working on next?
1: Yeah, so um I'm actually I have plans to start teaching uh in fall 2021. So, you know, I'm an aspiring educator uh, and yeah, hopefully go back to get my PhD and kind of continue on this journey of just uh, understanding hip hop more. I'd like to work on a book um, eventually kind of like stemming from um, this and yeah.
0: That's amazing. Um, again, I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time out to speak to me here today. Um, I greatly appreciate it. And I look forward to all the f- uh, future work that you end up publishing. Let that be another article or a book, what have you. Um, I'll definitely end up reading it. And hopefully we can stay in contact as well. And if you do end up uh, kind of publishing anything else, I'd love to, to have that conversation or this conversation again with you uh, for whatever that new, new piece ends up being.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I will definitely keep you updated. Thank you so much for reading my piece and for wanting to read my future work. That is such motivation for me too to, you know, keep on going. So I really, really appreciate you.